Southern Queries. I'm India Bastien. And I'm Aubrey Calvin. Together we explore being a part of the LGBTQ community in the South. A quick note on terminology. On this show, we let guests identify in the best way they're comfortable with. Some of the terms or topics might be different, new, or uncomfortable to you. That discomfort is part of what we're exploring together. We encourage you to listen with an open heart and continue these discussions with your larger community. We encourage any meaningful and politeful feedback. Thanks, and welcome to Southern Queries. How do we know Scott? Okay, so Scott is actually a friend of a mutual friend. Okay. I have a friend in Oklahoma City that owns a bookshop and publishing company named Literati Press, and his name is Charles Martin. And I was in Literati in Oklahoma City, and I saw Scott's memoir, and I read it, and I loved it. And then my friend April actually did the cover for it and we've been going, we've been friends since high school. And so this is one of those mutual friends. We live, we know the same groups of people, although we've never actually met before. So is this the first time you're going to be meeting them like via Zoom? Yes, actually I've been hounding him with emails and telling him how much I loved his book. And then when I did a pride book list for Literati Press because they're on bookshop.org, yeah. My pride book list for them, I included his book because I loved it so much. And I finally wore him down and he agreed, agreed to talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, just reading his bio, I'm already so fascinated. Um, mainly, I, I mean, I have so many questions. I'm sure you do too. But I think I'm particularly curious about their time serving as a youth minister at a Baptist church in Texas. What? <laughs> Just I'm like a little yes, bit mind blown. <laughs> it's a very traditional ministerial background, which is different from our interview with Kevin, who yeah. is definitely a little bit more public, a little bit and I'm gonna sound old when I say this, but you know, Scott and I are more Gen Xers, so we have more traditional types of religion and spirituality and Whereas you and Kevin are a little bit more on the millennial side of things. And so we finally get to talk to someone who's a Gen Xer like me, and I'm excited by that. Well, I'm excited because I don't think there's a, a wrong or right way to be spiritual or have faith. So this oh, is going to be not. so yeah. interesting to get contrasting experiences and, and also just learn more. Woo! Let's get Scott on here. I'm excited. I'm excited. Let's welcome Scott. Oh, oh, oh. Scott Jones grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, knowing since the age of five that he wanted to be a preacher. Then at age 29, he came out as a gay man while serving as a youth minister at a Baptist church in Texas. He is a graduate of Oklahoma Baptist University and received his PhD in philosophy from the University of Oklahoma. He has previously pastored churches in Arkansas, Texas, and Oklahoma. Today, Scott is the senior minister of the First Central Congregation no church in Omaha, Nebraska, and a lecturer in the philosophy department of Creighton University. He and his husband, Michael, are the delighted parents of a kindergartner. Yay. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 
We're, we're excited. Uh, so just to start out with the question we try to ask all our guests, can you tell us how you identify and why is that identity important to you? Um, gosh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of answers to that question, I guess. So on some level, I'm an Oklahoman, uh, small town kid, originally a Baptist, but not anymore, uh, but a Christian, um, a minister, which is pretty central to my identity, uh, uh, a gay man, a husband, a father. So I, you know, all of those are important for their own various reasons. And I don't, um, I don't feel like there's um, any one of those that's necessarily the determining factor in my life. It's the kind of the nexus of all of those things together um, and that have helped to shape me. And so that's part of, you know, what I do deal with in my book, my memoir is, is kind of trying to put all those pieces together and kind of keeping them, you know, with some integrity to each of those pieces. So. Yeah, for sure. And what pronouns do you use? Uh, he, uh, him, he, him, his. Okay. So I know that taking all of these different identities and putting them into one um, really creates uh, intersectionality on so many different levels. Why is it important to you to use a gay man and not um, queer? And do you have a, a relationship with either of those words? Gay man, just more common uh, in the parts of the country I've been in and uh and more use. I personally have no problem uh, identifying as queer, other people identify me as queer. It was particularly interesting when I served a predominantly LGBT church in Oklahoma City uh, in the previous decade um, that, um, you know, a lot of the middle-aged and older uh, gay and lesbian people just had no interest whatsoever in identifying queer or that word being used or and so it partly just kind of schooled me into just not using it as much uh and, and e even though as a kind of academic intellectuals uh side that is of course the, the term that everybody uses it's interesting we know that there is sort of a generational divide on the word and we're definitely learning that it's I think it's a lot of those where it's a question of, was it used as a derogatory term either for yourself or people you know growing up versus that re-embrace or reclaiming it that you see from a lot of people. So, and I'm right on the cusp of Gen X and millennial and I'm noticing that the term has different connotations depending on who I talk to. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, um... In that congregation, I did a whole uh, series on queer theory, partly to <laughs> to try to <laughs> have people kind of understand the term. But you know, even among like gays and lesbians of a certain age in Oklahoma, that seemed like a two San Francisco sort of thing. <laughs> so, um, I know you mention it in your book, but can you tell us about your coming out story and how does it incorporate in the South? Uh, well, let's see. Let, let, we'll do the you know pretty short version because that's an S, uh, half the books about that. Uh, so um, you know, grew up small town Oklahoma, Southern Baptist kid, and uh, I'm 46, so very comfortably Gen X. And uh, you know, growing up in an era where people did not come out, uh, particularly in small town Oklahoma in high school or even often college, it was usually a later in life sort of thing. Mm -hmm. 
the um, my husband's five years younger, and for him, it had already shifted. That that was something people did in college. It's interesting uh, how quickly the, that change occurred. But um, so I was serving. Uh, so I had, as with most of us, I had been aware that uh, I had attractions for men from you know as early as. Uh, as I, you know, would have had understood such things, uh, but I didn't understand them. And partly because like homosexual was not a category that really fit in our worldview. I was really fortunate that kind of in the time period and place I grew up, there really wasn't even all the anti-gay messaging. It was just not a topic of discourse. And so I really had no concept, you know, once a year when there was pride parade in usually San Francisco and New York, the evening news would have pictures, you know. Uh, and so it was really easy in small town Oklahoma to not think you looked like you were that, you know. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I just had no concept for it. So I always had the sense that I was going to grow up and then, you know, meet the perfect woman and, and be attracted to her and fall in love with her. And that, that of course, did not happen. <laughs> uh, and so young adulthood was coming to realize, oh, no, you know, this isn't just a a phase or a lack of having been around women or, you know, a lack of sexual development. Uh, if anything, the negative messages were just around sex in general uh, in small town Southern Baptist life. So I, I feel like uh, you know, I had these sexual neuroses that were implanted in me by this like very negative messaging just around any kind of sex grant. So, so no premarital sex, no, yeah. no premarital sex, don't get girls pregnant, don't be yeah. like that, yeah. Yeah, that even, you know, sexual thoughts were sinful and all this other stuff, you know, so, so I had no categories for understanding. But then, you know, through young adulthood, beginning to understand that. Uh, and then through my academic studies, my in fact, my religious studies, uh, coming to understand that as a Christian, I could interpret the Bible in different ways, that I didn't have to be locked into um, a negative. And like I said, partly because the negative viewpoint never really got drilled in my head to begin with. Um, the So I, for me, through my 20s, that was also a very classical Gen X thing of like, well, maybe I'm actually bisexual. Mm. Um, oh, I remember having that thought. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and you know I would date women and 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 just decide. Well, I'm not gonna pursue the guy thing just because it's just easier. Not, I'll try to make the other work. And of course that didn't work either. <laughs> and um, there was just uh, interestingly for me uh, the movie Angels in America is pretty central uh, when that was on the. HBO miniseries in 2003. I was 29 years old by that point, Baptist minister and youth minister in Dallas, Texas. Um, watching that um, that film just really, I got a sense of like, particularly the character of Joe and his struggles, like just I really identified with. And, uh, and at the end when uh, Prior Walter says, we want more life, we want blessing and that just, that spoke to me. And uh, there was this guy I'd been attracted to. And uh, and partly for years, I'd waited for someone else to seduce me and it never happened. So finally, it was when I decided I would take the initiative. Um, but you did? Yeah. So, so this guy, he was a brother of a friend who lived there, 
uh, and he was coming in for town for the holidays and and so he ended up spending the weekend with me instead of with them and one thing led to another because I let it because <laughs> you finally let, and, uh, let yeah. that wall down yes, yeah that happened. and so you know I so distinctly remember that you know first kiss of another guy and how it just, you know, immediately feels right. And then just within that, even within weeks of that first relationship going, oh, this is what this is supposed to feel like. This is what, you know, <laughs> ah, this, you know, and then you realize how forced and fake all the other uh, had. And so, um, so for me, once I did, once I kind of overcame that, um, you know, lack of courage and, on some level, lack of integrity, and um, and finally, like, took that step initiative for myself. I just came bolting out <laughs> and uh, you know enjoy gay life. So, so this was happening in Dallas. Yeah, in Dallas in the early aughts. So yeah, in the Bush years. So, so how did that affect your faith? I mean, I I can't like I'm still a little bit. Well, my mouth is kind of what yeah. you were a youth minister well, in Baptist church in Texas. Now, so fortunately, I was not in a fundamentalist congregation. It was a more moderate Baptist church, but the, the problem, particularly then, now that is that particular church has changed a lot in the last twenty years. But at the time, more moderate Baptist just didn't want to get near this issue with it. You know, they didn't want to touch it with a ten foot pole. Yeah. Uh, although there were some openly gay men who were in that congregation, I think that also was part of what helped when I moved there to work as the associate pastor oh, here were guys that were kind of like me, um, coupled gay men who lived in the suburbs and, you know, had boring middle-class lives. And it was like, oh, um, you know, that, you know, it's often that we have to see something and know that the possibility exists and is there. Um, and they were active church members. So, so this was not as, you know, as conservative a church as those I had grown up in. I had purposely as in employment gravitated to ones that were a little more open, but they were nowhere near ready to have a gay minister at that point, which was made abundantly clear uh, through the process. But like I said, that has changed that, it, you know, I, uh, they, uh, and I think my experience was a growing process for them too. So you came out to the congregation and your parents? No, not really. No? So um, I, I came out to the other ministers, including my boss. And fortunately, he didn't. He was a 70-year-old uh, minister who'd been there for almost 25 years. And, uh, and the, to his credit, he didn't fire me. I mean, that would have been the easy thing to have done and the stereotypical thing to have done. And I fully, you know, when I, the day I came out to him, I was prepared for that possibility. Um, he just asked that I not tell anyone in the congregation and that worked for a little while, but that didn't work for very long. Um, and sure. so I began wondering like what, and it just wasn't working. I mean, people aren't stupid. <laughs> So, I mean, I would occasionally get directly asked by someone in the congregation, and usually someone who wanted to be welcoming and friendly, but um, the, uh, 
so um so i had to f so the struggle for me really at the time was less about my faith and more about this other sense of my identity that i had from childhood felt called to ministry and that that was such a central part of who i am and it and part of my struggle leading up to all this had been like do i give up this because it, it just didn't see what the path forward was to remain in ministry um, and be an openly gay man in places like Texas and Oklahoma and stuff like that, you know. Um, and, and it was still pretty rare at that point. I mean, it's still not hugely common, but it was a whole lot more rare then. Um, the, um, so I had to really struggle. And so part of it was I had to decide that yes, to be authentically who I am sexually, I may have to not have the career or the, or the life that I've always thought I was going to have. Um, and, and that, that seemed to be the right choice. And then fortunately I didn't lose my career. So, um, but there were, there were long periods where I wasn't sure that it was going to turn out that way. So, and there were a lot of people my age that it didn't turn out that way. It just did. Well, I mean, if you look at it, the church you lead now is associated with the United Church, United Church of Christ, right? Right. And so, how is the denomination different, like in terms so, of LGBT community and acceptance? How's it so different? The, yeah, the United Church of Christ has, for two hundred years, been the most liberal of mainline Protestant churches, and they ordained the first openly gay man in 1972 before I was born. So this, you know, a, a gay man in this denomination was not, uh, you know, unique or, um, but uh, part of the, the church I currently serve is the first central congregational church in Omaha, Nebraska, where the 160 year old congregation. And it was one of those kind of old traditional churches that, you know, 98% heterosexual, uh, Midwestern sort of place. So, uh, and I've been here 10 years now. So even for, for them, that was kind of a huge historic first in 2010 when uh, they were willing to call uh, an openly gay man. But because uh, that, that even in a denomination that did ordain gay people, it still, even 10 years ago, wasn't all that common that gay people got to serve big old historic churches. <laughs> uh, so hopefully, and fortunately, that has changed more in the last decade, too. So so that's what took you away from Dallas. Cause took me away, well, it took me away from Oklahoma. I, I left Dallas in 2005. So in 2005, when I was in Dallas and trying to figure out what to do next, um, I found out about an opening at the as pastor of the Cathedral of Hope in Oklahoma City. Now, the Cathedral of Hope in Dallas uh, was, at least at the time, like the world's largest LGBT congregation in the thousands. I've been there. It's beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. wonderful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, for a lot of people, that's the first time they were kind of like in a room with that many gay people. <laughs> you know, it's just amazing. You know, so um, the, and it was always, of course, so ironic that the largest. LGBT congregation was in Dallas, Texas. Um, of all places. Of all places, yeah. So, uh, but they had founded a satellite congregation in Oklahoma City. And in 2005, they were looking for a new minister for that. So uh, a friend of mine 
let me know about. And and that was it was perfect. It was a way to go home, be openly gay, and still be a minister. The three things I thought would never be true at the same time. Uh, and it was so funny when I went in for the interview. They didn't my first interview. They didn't know much about me. And and the the person who was interviewing me said, now. We've had some trouble finding people who would want to, you know, stay in this congregation in Oklahoma. We've hired people, but the pastor before me had come from uh, San Francisco, and and she just didn't feel and all that great a fit in Oklahoma City. And so they said, so we really need someone who feels very comfortable in Oklahoma and can talk the language and feels like they can stay there. Tell me about yourself. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, so. Uh, it just was like the, per so, uh, so that got me out of the situation in Dallas where uh, it was, you know, I would, could have continued to serve in that church, but not with my full authentic self at, at that point in time. And I had, and while there was a period in which I'm first coming out, which on some level that allowed me some protection to kind of explore myself and get to know myself that was not going to work. Uh, and so then when I moved to Oklahoma City in 2005, and it, it's then when I made that move that it became fully out to the congregation I was leaving. You know, it's kind of like as I was leaving is when I came out. So um, the uh, so they kind of dealt with it as I was going out the door uh, and then afterwards. But then I got, you know, getting to Oklahoma City as a still somewhat relatively new newly out gay man into a you know pastoring one of the openly gay churches and and i had been told this would be part of the job like you know you'll be one of the the spokespeople for the whole lgbtq community and and that was immediately true you know so uh, i was you know within days of starting the job you know i was doing uh television and print and radio interviews and all this other sort of, <laughs> you know, I think back now, there's like how, how ridiculous that was. Well, you know, I, I totally get that, you know, because yeah. when I go back to Oklahoma City, because I'm from, I'm from Edmond. Oh, yeah, that's I'm where my mom Edmund. currently lives, yeah. And then I went to Oklahoma State University, but I came to Texas and I came out. And now it does seem like Oklahoma City is more accepting, it's more open. I don't recognize a lot of it in terms of its openness. That wasn't the Oklahoma City I grew up living yeah. near for a decade before coming to Texas. So it's just amazing how much that city has changed. Yeah, I think it really has. And, and even you more were a so part in the decade I've been gone. I think so. You I, were a part you know, of that I, change. I want to take yeah. some credit for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, way to I come out like, of the closet, though. <laughs> yeah, it was a way to come you know, Like I said, I just, when I, once I made that decision, I didn't take my time. <laughs> <laughs> So um, this interview is part of a two-part series we're doing on queer faith um, okay. or gay faith or LGBTQ faith. Mm -hmm. Our um, guest on the other episode was more of a digital millennial type of minister mm -hmm. with a YouTube channel, a podcast, and all of that jazz. Sure. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I am getting the sense that you're more of a, air quotes, traditional reverend. Do you yes, yeah. feel that how people are coming to religion and and spirituality is changing these days? Yes. And so, of course, then we have to bracket out the, like, crazy moment we're currently in, where it's like, definitely, yes, 
right now, uh, but in the larger sense, yes. Um, now, this will get outside the sense of being Southern queer, but like the Midwest is not the cutting edge of like cultural <laughs> development. So, so Omaha is still far more traditional <laughs> than uh, other places, even maybe more so than like Oklahoma City. And I've so, been to Nebraska. People are very nice there. It's a wonderful very, place. I love they, it. <laughs> they pride themselves on their niceness. Yeah. The uh, but the uh, so a more traditional approach here works. There's not uh, not as much of the and, and lots of clergy will discover that when they move here from other places that more traditional approaches can still be successful here. They maybe had quit doing in other places. Um, so that's the milieu I've now been in for the last uh, decade. Uh, but yes, I do think that uh, there is, um, the main thing is there's just greater diversity, uh, more plurality about how people engage their spiritual lives and, um, and less being wedded to any one sort of approach um, but you know taking wisdom and truth where they find it and what what is useful and for them and um, yes so I think that is part of the change and hopefully overall um, becoming more you know becoming more inclusive of other people the, it's been a very long time now since I've been an evangelical. Every once in a while, people still ask me, well, why are the evangelicals doing it? I was like, I don't know. I haven't been one for over 20 years. So like, <laughs> I can't explain Donald Trump, you know. Um, so the, um, but it does seem now, now as an outsider, uh, it does seem that, you know, even younger evangelicals, particularly on queer issues are, very different from their parents and their grandparents. And that even in those traditions uh, are changing and, and we can anticipate in future decades uh, will be radically different from what I experienced growing up. So. Uh, uh, I hope. So, yeah. No, you hope, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so with your memoir open, a memoir of faith, family, and sexuality in the heartland, available on Amazon. Uh, I had to put that plug in there because I told you I'd promote you. your book. <laughs> yeah, and I realized as you were reading the bio, it wasn't in the bio because I took the bio from the book. So. <laughs> well, no, I read what you sent to me. I, I know, and then I realized I forgot to add that line. because no. <laughs> um, Yeah, no, I realized, that, oh, you're not putting your bio, the book in the bio. Okay, well, I'll, I'm going to talk about it that, anyway. Yeah, that was my own mistake. So. Um, why did you write it? Like what, like, what was the onus to write a memoir? Oh, yeah. So that's a great, yeah. I had heard so many stories about Southern queer life that usually involved um, abandoning religion, abandoning the South or the heartland, and, and going someplace else in order to find freedom and integrity. Like, there's so many versions of that story. There's also so many versions of the story about, uh, and those are all true and authentic. Like, you know, um, there are also so many versions of the story about how horrible my family was or how horrible my church was. Also, all completely true and authentic. It seemed to me that there was a lack of stories 
of here's someone who stayed in red states and made it work and 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 made, retained my faith even though I had to change denominations and some other, but retain my faith and retain my career and was able to live, I think, a good life with all of its challenges and its difficulties, uh, but uh, maintaining relations with my family and my faith and in these really challenging red states at a time period where that was really not easy to do. Uh, and I just didn't think that's, and that story was out there. And so that's what I thought mine, there, there, was, there was a contribution from my story to make that was different from other people's. Um, so, you know, hopefully people find that encouraging. The other thing was, is I did play this like, this role, not this major role, but a, a, a role in like, I always thought of places like Oklahoma, you know, 15, 10 and 15 years ago and 20 years as, Oklahoma and Texas, it's like really the front lines of the battle for uh, queer equality. It, you know, all, there's all the press about, you know, things going on in other places, you know, obviously like Massachusetts was getting marriage first and other things, but like we were really having to fight um, mm -hmm. in, um, and, and I, and I felt like, you know, I had played my role in some some historic battles in, in in Oklahoma that had otherwise not been a part of the kind of larger queer narrative. And I think those stories need to be lifted up too, that even within like kind of understanding the success of the gay movement in, in, in the last 20 years, that the attention needed to be paid not just to what was happening in LA and New York, but 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 also the battles that were in places like, you know, Oklahoma City and, and Dallas. And yeah, Scott, I think that it's so important to highlight that. I mean, I don't know if that came across in your correspondence with Aubrey at all, but that's partly why we decided to start this podcast is I love listening to stories, but about LGBT people and coming out in the community, but I did find them very centric to San Francisco, Chicago, New York, LA. And a lot of my people, myself included, I came out here in the South. The South yeah. embraced my most authentic self. Mm -hmm. And it it didn't really dawn on me until later how red of a state I was in. I came out in Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I found that city to be outrageously welcoming, massively queer and no one yeah. knew about it it's still yeah. i feel like it's a little bit more underground so mm -hmm. i wanted to give a platform for people to tell their stories and hopefully i know i'm not the only gay person in suburban <laughs> fort worth um you know and giving a, a a platform for these people out there who might not know that they're not alone um so i thought your book sounded so I'm so excited to read it. Aubrey already read it, but I, I wanted to have you on the show because I wanted oh, your story to be told. Um, so yeah, I'm just saying I feel everything you just said. That was powerful. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, um, you know, even within our larger movement, it's easy for us to get overlooked as the the big stories are being told. So.
so you mentioned your husband. How did you two meet, or how did your partner meet, you and your partner meet? So um, Michael, at the time, was a student at Oklahoma State University and, in Stillwater, Oklahoma. <clears throat> and, and I'm an OU grad, so, you know, typical Oklahoma, married couple, one from each, with each of the rival schools. So. We'll forgive the, um, you for that on this show. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, so I met Michael when the Soul Force Equality Ride came to Oklahoma. Now, uh, um, in the mid, this is 2006, yeah. The um, Soul Force was this national organization founded by Mel White that wanted to use Gandhian and King methods to try to bring about change, particularly in evangelical religious circles. And so based on the freedom rides, they did this thing called the equality rides where they took a bunch of queer college age students and drove them on a bus through the South to uh, usually evangelical colleges and universities. Uh, and they would try to engage the school in dialogue. Some of the universities would set up actual formal chances for that. Others just let them on campus to chat with students. Some told them they weren't allowed on at all, at which point they engage in direct action and get arrested uh, and draw attention. And that went on for uh, a couple of years. But that very first year, they came to my alma mater, Oklahoma Baptist University. And so I was the local point person that helped them um, facilitate that visit. And, um, and so as a part of that, then, so the, they were in Oklahoma City one night uh, at a restaurant giving a presentation on who they were and what they were doing. And it was that moment, you know, the, the front door of the restaurant opens and in walks this incredibly handsome, well-dressed, well-poised guy. I, 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 I know the moment, you know. And, um, and then all these people, all of that, people in that group jumped up and they're like, Michael, and they ran up and like, so like that made him even more attractive, you know, all these people. Uh, he had helped them with their visit to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa a few days before and had been arrested as part of what went on there. Um, he works his way through the restaurant, chatting with people, ends up coming to my table because he knows someone else I'm sitting with and I meet him. Unfortunately, a year later when I went, took him to dinner to the same restaurant to replicate that moment. He had no recollection whatsoever <laughs> of our first oh. meeting. Um, so that's a, that's a really funny story when we tell it in tandem at a dinner party, you know, so, uh, but it, so over the next course of the next few months, we just kept running into each other because we were both involved in gay rights activism. Right? And uh, so at a, pride board meeting a few months later I invited him to drinks and and then it just uh went from there so I mean we so we met through our our being activists and uh that's what you know, kind of oh, an activist love story it oh. is yeah oh. oh my goodness and I I I know who you're I know who he is, and I don't oh, know good. if he wanted to say his name or not. I knew him in college. I bet he doesn't remember me, but he was always very popular. Everyone in the room would always know who he is. So 
I totally get that. And I understand that excitement to see him because everyone <laughs> loves Michael. You already said his name, but everyone <laughs> knew Michael at OSU. So I totally get that. Yeah. How small our world just became. <laughs> it is, yeah. It is a small world. I doubt he remembers this, was, this was 15, 15 years, years ago, ago, but I definitely, I definitely know, know he was very, he was very involved, involved, very motivational. And I just and love I just that, love that it was an act of his love story. Love story. I, love I love that. At some point in there, he was the president of their... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sexual, sexual diversity, diversity organization. organization. Yes. yes. He was, he was president of SOTA, I think it was called. Yeah. The same, the same time, time I was president of the Black, Black Student, student Organization. organization. So we did a, so we lot, did of a lot of things similarly, similarly together, together in our offices. Next we're next to each other in the basement of our student union. But he's very involved, very influential. Big guy. Big guy. So Scott, what do you do for fun and to build a sense of community? Uh, well, I don't know. You know, now I'm in like middle-aged gay married man, so <laughs> you know, with a five-year-old. So uh, in the middle of a pandemic, when you can't do much of anything, and uh, so I'm the Michael currently. Uh, works for the election commission. It is a necessary worker in overtime. So it's kind of like. Uh, I'm the one that's overseeing schooling and childcare and everything else. So, so fun right now is lightsaber battles and blowing bubbles in the backyard and uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, and then when I get a moment to myself, I usually want it to be very quiet. I want to <laughs> read or have a drink a glass of whiskey or something. But yes. So I don't have any really exciting answer to that question. No, uh, your answer was perfect. Sometimes yeah. the best thing you could do for fun is just be by yourself and be alone with your thoughts. So that's totally a great answer. <laughs> My last question for you is, uh, what does being gay in the South mean to you? And why do you think it's important for us to talk about it? To me, it's like there's there's so much of uh, Southern culture that <laughs> that works so well with a queer identity. There's so much of it that's kind of campy. Uh, there's so much of it that um, centers around you know stereotypically, well, at least stere you know kind of stereotypically gay thing. You know, hospitality, cooking. Um, it. To me, it's so such a rich culture in which to be queer, and uh, I wish had a was a little more understood that way in the you know in the larger culture. Like how how comfortable it can be when you find your community and your niche and your supportive group of people and the place that embraces you, that it can really be a place of of thriving. So. Well, thanks for being on the show, Scott. You can find his book, Open, A Memoir of Faith, Family, and Sexuality in the Heartland, on Amazon. And his website is escottjones.com. So thanks, Scott. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thank you. Bye. Good luck with the whole podcast. Thank you. Yeah.
You can find more information about this episode and the show at our website, southernqueries.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Southern Queries. Queries is with two E's. Until next time, thanks for listening. Some credits. Production. Your hosts, India and Aubrey. Audio mixing by Allison Holly. Story research, Aubrey Calvin. Editing, India Bastian. This is Southern Queries. <laughs>